0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Joining me today is Sam Gregg to discuss the uh, important question of what it is American conservatives should actually be conserving. Sam Gregg is a visiting scholar in the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation, and he's also a distinguished fellow in political economy at the American Institute for Economic Research. Sam, you've just written a paper for the Heritage Foundation titled, Why the American Founding matters for American conservatism. So let me just put that to you in the form of a question. You know, why does the American founding matter uh, for conservatism? Is that, is that the right framework, or uh, do we miss other frameworks if we go in that direction?
0: Well, thanks, Richard. I, I think it's true to say that anything that is trying to present itself as American inevitably has to try and show that it is in some way connected to the founding. And that includes conservatism in America. And there are two reasons for this. One is that whether people like it or not, it's it's very clear that legitimacy of ideas in America depends in some way upon your ability to show that it is somehow linked to the founding period, founding ideas, founding texts, founding documents. Because those are the things that essentially give meaning and definition to the United States in a way that you don't find in other countries. Other countries like France or even Britain are defined by specific types of histories, specific customs, uh, what you might call narratives about their identity as peoples often viewed in terms of conflicts with other peoples. But America is different because its identity is located in its ideas, its specific ideas that came about and were flourishing at the time of the founding and that very important period in which America first emerges as a distinct country, as America, as opposed to Virginians or people from Massachusetts or whatever it happens to be. So that's one reason I think it's very important.
1: Yeah, with, uh, just think about the time span of the American founding, you know, roughly early 1760s uh through 1787, 1788 the ratification of the Constitution. What ideas uh, define this period and what 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 can we identify as sort of the essence of the American founding that that conservatives must defend now in much different circumstances?
0: Well, there's a lot, but let me just identify three sets. Uh, One is the particular political order of American constitutionalism. Now, constitutionalism is hardly limited to... The United States. Constitutionalism as a movement emerges in the 18th century, at least in the sense that we understand that today. But the American version of constitutionalism is quite specific. It embodies, for example, a strong doctrine of separation of powers. It also embodies the idea of federalism, which was very much an American contribution to the whole idea of constitutionalism. So that's one, the political order of American constitutionalism. The second, I think, is the idea of natural rights rooted in natural law. That language was spoken very specifically by the founding generation. Uh, You find it in the Declaration of Independence, but you find it in the literature uh, of the time and even in some of the state constitutions, and arguably, some people would say, in the United States Constitution itself. The third is the idea. The third thing is the idea of America as a commercial republic, which is a very distinct understanding of the relationship between the economy and the political order in which commerce is given a preeminent place in uh, the republic's understanding of itself. Now, one of the reasons we know that, cons- that conservatives, American conservatives, should be defending these things is because all three things have been under attack by progressives since the late 19th century. And we see that expressed in our own time in a type of moral relativism or historicism when it comes to thinking about questions of rights. We see the progressives and modern liberals, that's essentially their view of the world, Uh, We also see the Constitution being reinterpreted or simply ignored in order to produce a more centralized and expansive government power. But we also see progressives and uh, the modern left in America very much behind the idea of America as a social democracy. So I think that tells us that these things about the founding are specific dimensions of that founding that conservatives must defend if we want America to remain America.
1: So I just want to maybe combine two things, natural rights and natural law. You, know, and you just mentioned the progressive, So you know, leading progressive thinkers have denied natural rights, uh, have de- uh, denied natural law. Th- these are fictions. These are uh, fairy tales. This, these are colored by religion. Um, we, we know these aren't true because of science. All of this sort of stuff has kind of come out of the progressive class. Um, how, what is the ground uh, of our natural rights. Uh, what, what are they? Um, and, and I suppose, you know, this other question is, you know, the Declaration speaks of inalienable rights. Um, what does that mean?
0: Well, the, the founders made a distinction between alienable rights and inalienable rights. And by an inalienable rights, they mean things that simply are by the nature of the thing, that these are somehow directly derived and grounded in human reason, that these are self-evident truths, that it is self-evident that humans have a right, for example, to life, or it is self-evident that there is a right to freedom. These things immediately are apprehended by the intellect as something that's just true in itself. So when they talk about inalienable rights, that's what they have in mind by that. And it, it hearkens back to this older tradition of natural law, where natural law is, of course, another way of saying right reason, and it's a tradition of moral philosophy that goes back as far as Plato and Aristotle receives the different types of modifications via Christianity, and particularly the work of people like Thomas Aquinas. But for the founders, it was, it was very much grounded and linked back. This idea of natural rights was linked back to people like Locke, on the one hand, who, who does have a type of natural law uh, uh, apparatus in the background of his thought, but also what you might call Protestant natural law thinkers, who were very prolific uh, writing in the 17th century and 18th century. And we're talking about people like the Anglican divine Richard Hooker, who wrote very extensively on things like natural law. And we know that this was important for the founders because they very much read their interpretation of natural rights against that type of background, that natural law type of background. So that's, I think, what we're talking about in terms of the the historical character of these things, but also what the founders meant when they invoked this type of language. The idea that rights, just uh, whatever people want them to be, or just subject to majority preference, or reflect a type of uh, historical uh, relativity, would have seemed to the founders like nonsense. So I think that tells us where they're coming from.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I'm listening to you talk, in in a way you've sort of answered the question. You know, as as you know, a number of thinkers have emerged, um, integralists who say that the natural rights tradition within the American founding is solipsistic, uh, autonomistic, and ultimately destructive of moral, social, and cultural order because it exalts the individual above everything and leads to sort of this uh, limitless sense of self. Your response to that. I think you've limbed a response, but what do you make of that?
0: Well, I think it's ahistorical for one thing. Uh, It's very clear that if you read the founders, including those who were very influenced by Locke, there's no question that they see natural rights as grounded in moral truths about the nature of the human person and the duties that we have by virtue of that same natural law towards each other. So the notion that natural rights language leads to a highly autonomistic conception of the human person, if you go back and you read the founders, and more importantly, you read the sources that they were talking about, it's very clear that these rights are not sort of freestanding things, that they are linked to these deeper traditions. And we know that because the founders cited these people constantly were citing these people. Now, it's a a slightly different conception of natural law that you might find expressed in the uh, medieval period, but even conceptions of natural rights, there are plenty of people who would argue today, they can be found in the writings of canon lawyers in the uh, medieval period, and even in the works of people like Thomas Aquinas, where there's a clear conception of the idea that there are certain things owed to people by virtue of, of who they are as qua human beings. So the notion that that this tradition just springs out of nowhere, that it makes a, a sort of deeply radical break with conceptions of natural law in the past, I don't think stands up to the briefest of uh, the briefest of reflection upon the history of these ideas.
1: Um, and you make the p- point in, in this paper you've written for for Heritage that John Locke, in particular, as a thinker, many point to, has sort of spreading this uh, individualistic gospel. But you make the point, and I think it's well worth noting the founders appropriated Locke uh, as statesman as as those who had a practical goal they, they needed to accomplish. They were not trying to bring his entire philosophy in uh, to the extent they even understood it or knew about it.
0: Yes, I think that's true. So the historian of the American founding, who I rely upon quite a bit in this paper, uh, was Forrest MacDonald, who was a very distinguished um, historian of the founding. And he makes the case, and I think convincingly, that... Uh, Locke's ideas suited the American founding period, especially the revolutionary period, right, because it was a useful language and lexicon and set of ideas to invoke when you're trying to explain why you're engaging in what was viewed in Britain as insurrection. It's also the case that after the revolution, as you move into the... For- the um, the period in which you have constitutional debate going on and the formation of the United States Constitution, that Locke gets referenced far less in that particular period, and you see some of these older traditions of constitutional reflection starting to be brought to bear upon the discussion. And even and even in the case of Locke, as I've mentioned before, uh, he talks about virtue, Uh, He does locate these ideas of natural rights uh, in the idea that there is a benevolent creator who stands at the beginning of time. So even when you look at Locke himself, it's certainly true, I think, that the American founders were appropriating him to achieve certain purposes. But I also think it's a mistake to sort of just dismiss Locke holus bolus as someone who's just talking about natural rights and has no attention or no reflection upon this deeper natural law tradition. So I think this so this is part of the complexity of the history of ideas right and the complexity of of the American founding itself. There's lots of different things going on some of which are reflecting the expression and development of particular ideas but also very practical politics as the American founders and those who are the framers of the constitution are trying to put together a series of political structures and arrangements that they believe will protect liberty, will maintain limited government, and will allow people to pursue human happiness, which is no small exercise.
1: No, I I want to think, you know, we're talking about American conservatism here um, and, you know, the relationship with the American founding. So let's move into the constitution itself. But uh, how should American conservatives think about that translation between this conversation we're having about natural rights and a written constitution and thinking about what it means and what it protects?
0: Well, um, you know, if you look at the constitution itself, the language of rights is not particularly invoked strongly. You don't find explicit references to uh, natural law. But I think it's fair to say that there's a substructure to the Constitution. Which very much draws and very is very much shaped by this tradition of natural rights and natural law, not least because that was uh, the, these claims about natural law and natural rights were simply accepted as the normative way in which you thought about these sorts of questions. So whether you were a um, whether you were a devout Christian like someone like a, a John. Witherspoon or Charles Carroll, or if you were more of a deistic type like Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson and maybe even John Adams, the notion that constitution somehow operated outside um, that particular philosophical understanding of the world would have been inconceivable to these individuals inconceivable to these individuals whatever they believed about religion whatever they believed about the nature of God uh, so that's, that's I think that's part of the discussion that needs to be had uh, and that's why it's also very important when we're interpreting the constitution that we go back and we look at what the founders actually meant especially if you're an originalist right so the originalism is very much a sort of um, in, in, in vogue conservative legal philosophy today But the originalism of the time, if you like, was very much one that in which natural law and natural rights are just simply part of the mental furniture of the founders. And I think that's just undeniable because what else would they have been thought thinking about at the time? Legal positivism was not really part of the environment in which people lived.
1: I think um, an interesting wrinkle here, which has been lost in the conservative movement, because so much of our work has been to push against the work of uh, Supreme Courts after World War II in yes, cases dealing with religious freedom, individual autonomy, um, secularism. And we wanted to push back against that. We wanted to find a baseline to do that. But what we have overlooked is – I mean the idea of the Constitution can also be interpreted and defined by legislators and, and the president and elected officials – to set forth a constitutional program the, that they believe in. And, you know, that easily could incorporate natural rights and natural law arguments uh, sort of undergirding our Constitution. And I think that's sort of been lost. I think that's, that's just sort of a wrinkle, I think, overall in this debate. Um, you know, you've mentioned in this paper, too, and this is sort of a perennial within conservatism, particularly right now, separation of powers mm-hmm. and uh, that notion in the Constitution, you note in this paper, one of the primary sources is Montesquieu. Uh, but this is something new that they have to confront. Uh, and uh, how are you going to ground power? Because uh, it's a country of more or less equal individuals. Uh, so who's going to be represented? How are they going to be represented? And, and what are all these powers going to mean? And how are you going to limit them? And they alight upon separation of powers as a key part of our constitutional order.
0: Yes, and the idea of separation of powers had been floating around in the eighteenth century, as particularly as expressed by thinkers like Montesquieu. But even if you go back to the medieval period and even I guess even further back uh to the um the ancient world, you do find conceptions of separation of powers at work. I mean the Romans worked very hard at this right for for quite some period. Of time, and they came up with all sorts of institutional structures that, unfortunately, were unable to withstand uh, the temptations and and pressures coming from uh, aspirations to tyranny, to to a type of uh, a type of heavily centralization of power, and and of course the founders read all this. They, I mean, they were very influenced by reading the, uh, what had happened to the Roman Republic and the way in which uh, the division of powers in the Roman Republic had actually broken down. So you have Montesquieu's ideas at work, you have uh, the uh, some of these older traditions of classical republicanism at work, and so what the founders do, of course, is that it's not they don't interpret separation of powers as meaning the legislature does this and nothing but this, and the executive does this but nothing but this, and the judiciary does this but nothing but this. In fact, With the American Constitution, you see the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary all basically take on different types of functions. Uh, So, for example, the president is involved in the legislative process, right, insofar as he has to sign the bill that's been passed by the House of Representatives and the Senate. To that extent, he's a uh, legislator. Um, So that's just one example. So yeah. the founders, when they thought about this, I mean, they were thinking about the separation of powers, but it's also mixing powers up as much as possible so that there's check upon check and balance upon balance, and to which, of course, they added the whole federalism dimension, which introduces a whole nother level of checks and balances between the federal government and, of course, the governments of, and legislatures of the states.
1: You know, progressives, and I think Woodrow Wilson was the first to articulate it, and just shocking detail, have argued that this is a mistake. Um, and you know, Woodrow Wilson said it would actually promote greater accountability to combine powers in one set of hands instead of to separate them. And the people would understand who's exercising power, and it would be good. It would be good for democracy. And you know, he argued in particular on behalf of the president uh, should hold these powers. He could be as big as he, you know, a big a man as he can be. Um, That seems to me that has become the course of much of American government in the 20th century. Um, Also underscored by foreign policy, the Cold War, the the presidency, the executive power just grew dramatically. And it seemed to grow in conjunction with um, this idea also of just regulating the economy extensively through the bureaucracy. Is separation of powers – how should conservatives – defend that. Uh, is this primarily something for the judiciary to do, as we've just had some nice Supreme Court opinions in this last term on this front? Um, because it, it does seem that so many powers have been created by Congress, given to the president. that uh, This is a, just a massive problem for the recovery of constitutionalism that conservatives face.
0: Yes. And it's, it's, it's not only the delegation of powers to the executive office itself that's a problem. We also have the delegation of powers effectively to uh, organs of the uh, administrative state who issue interpretive understandings of legislation and, so, and in many cases are explicitly authorized to do so by the uh, the legislature. so what part of the problem is that the legislature in particular has more or less given up some of its responsibilities. Uh, to to, to do what they're supposed to do to effectively agencies of the federal government that are not elected, that are essentially bureaucracies, and as you point out, have essentially expanded and grown dramatically throughout the 20th century, really beginning with, I suppose, people like Wilson, but really taking off with the New Deal and Great Society, and some of the other factors that you mentioned, the Cold War and the necessities of confronting the Soviet Union, etc., so what do we have to do? Well, we, one thing that has been done, of course, as you mentioned, the judiciary, at least at the Supreme Court, since May, probably the 1980s has been involved to varying degrees in trying to wind back some of these things to, to uh, make the legislature do what it's supposed to be doing. But it's also clear to me that uh, there's another two other things that the conservatives need to do. One is... The legisl- they have to encourage the legislature and the presidency to sort of un- to themselves act and behave and legislate and, 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 and um, carry out their responsibilities, which in ways that reflect their own belief in the nature of constitutionally limited government. And conservatives haven't always done that in, in practice, right? Uh, and the other, so that's one thing. The second thing they have to do is, is conservatives have to confront... Those within their own ranks who uh, who or at least who identify themselves as being on the, the right side of American politics, who would essentially embrace a progressive methodology, if you like, for achieving conservative goals? So they would say they, they essentially adopt a, a view of the Constitution as very similar to that of progressive thinkers. Uh, and therefore are willing to interpret the Constitution uh, and act in ways that clearly reflect their own belief that we need a centralized corporatist state centered around the executive office, the executive branch, in order so that we can achieve what they believe are conservative goals. So there's much work to do with the legislature and the people who go into government, the federal government, when there's a conservative, ostensibly conservative administration. But we've also got some work to do in terms of convincing those on the right who are very tempted to embrace progressive means to achieve conservative goals. Because when you embrace conservative means, particularly progressive means that are very similar to those actually articulated by progressives, guess what? You start thinking and acting like a progressive.
1: What do we have? I and mean, you, you talk about this some in your paper. Uh, because as we think about you know the Supreme Court, particularly the West Virginia, the EPA decision, just saying to the executive branch or saying to the EPA, uh, you don't have the authority to do this. I mean, you're just making this up out of a statute to, to shift us to a carbon uh, neutral economy or a net zero economy. And change the way we produce our energy, but the, the thought occurs to me that the Supreme Court can 't make Congress do its job, and uh, it could it could incentivize it, but facilitate it, but they have to want to do their job, and the members have to want have to take pride in their institution and have to act with a certain amount of virtue uh, and yes. courage to do this. What do we have from our founding regarding virtue and in institutions? I mean, as conservatives a lot of times look back, particularly the Federalist Papers, and think in terms of a almost a rational choice political science model. Uh, But what do we have in terms of do the right thing because it's the right thing and it's good for the country?
0: Well, I think we have the example of lots of founders, right, who really did live up to this type of model that you're describing. Now, during the founding period and the framing of the constitution let's be clear there were lots of people around who behaved like uh, a lot of politicians behave today so they they behave in a self-interested way in the negative sense of that they don't put the general welfare that the constitution talks about at the forefront of their mind etc so the, so so there were plenty of people around at the time who were who were like that as well, you only need to read um, biographies of people like Adams or Jefferson or Hamilton or even Washington, and you, you see these characters popping up all over the place. But what's interesting is that we can look to particular founders and say, Look, here are people who were flawed, who were fallible, who were made mistakes, etc., but nonetheless chose the right way forward whether it's Washington when he refused to, to accept the sort of charge that was given by a good number of officers of the Continental Army to basically, okay, we've got to do something and we need to use force to, to do this. And he very much says, no, I'm not going to do that, and he explains why. and he, he, The way that's presented and the way that, that he articulates it, it's sort of classic virtue-based politics. Um, so there's plenty of examples, and I think this is where the founding is, is very important. We have these examples of particular individuals who confronting very difficult political problems, whether it's things like what type of economy the United States is going to have, or even more complicated, what role was the United States going to play in the emerging and growing conflict across the world between Britain on the one hand and revolutionary France on the other, I mean, it's not as if they weren't diff- dealing with very difficult, in- indeed, intractable problems. They certainly were. But nonetheless, there's plenty of cases in which it's very clear where they said, no, I'm going to do this because it is the right thing for the country, despite all the temptations to the country. Whether it's things like Washington saying, I'm not going to run for a third term. I think this would be bad. Um, or whether it's Adams pushing ahead with um, staying out of war with France in the, the late 18th century, despite all the pressures being brought upon him by different people to do precisely that. Or, and, and even more broadly, the way in which some of the founders used their position to talk about what they thought the Republic should be. If you read, for example, Washington's farewell address, or if you read the correspondence between Adams and Jefferson, it's pretty high-minded stuff. It's grounded in reality, I would argue, but it's pretty high-minded stuff, and it shows us, it gives us direction about how American political leaders, despite all the same pressures that exist today, were nonetheless able to project... A virtue-orientated understanding of the role of politicians and legislators in the body politic.
1: As I'm I'm listening to you, I'm I'm just thinking that conception of virtue and duty uh, for many of them was an appeal back to certain Greek and Roman uh, political actors. Uh, The Federalist Papers, Fainley, uh, they they take three men, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, John Jay take the pen name Publius, To explain their handiwork, the debates between the federalists and anti-federalists take place between them, taking various pen names from primarily the Roman uh, political uh, history. Uh, um, That conception of of virtue is one that seems very foreign to us. I mean, not just the appeal to classical Republican virtue at times, but uh, a modern republic that's become very secular and accepted a lot of claims, uh, seems to be accepting a lot of claims that are boundless in terms of human morality. Um, That's a difficult path back, but it it seems to me it's the one that has to be made if we're going to breathe life into this country again.
0: Yes, and the founders, as, as, as you point out, they explicitly drew upon these sources from the past. It's very difficult to underestimate just how much the founders were influenced by reading uh, Roman and Greek historians, Roman and Greek philosophers, uh, because they were they they looked back to these people as individuals who were grappling with very similar problems to their own time, and in many cases, of course, failed. Right, the Roman Republic failed. Uh, the Athenian Republic eventually, uh, the Athenian democracy, I should say, eventually sort of came apart, and they had the criticisms as well of the of the. Greek and Roman period. But nonetheless, they they looked to these figures and said, there is much that we can draw upon here that is good and important and extremely, extremely uh, pertinent to our times and the challenges that we face. And I don't, you know, if, if you're an American conservative, uh, I don't think you have much choice but to look back to some of these traditions and then try and bring them to bear upon the present. Now, it won't be exactly the same. Some of the challenges are different. The economic life is somewhat different. Some of the political pressures, both domestically and externally, are, are simply different from the time of the founding and others. But nonetheless, uh, there is much wisdom that we can learn from these, these figures and the people that they learn from as well. I mean, this is one of the great things I, th- I always think about um, someone like Edmund Burke, for example, so very much committed to liberty, committed to limited government, constitutionalism, etc., but understood the importance of drawing upon the wisdom of the past and the dangers of disdaining it or pretending that somehow, well, there's really nothing, nothing in the past could possibly be of interest or relevance to us. So we just need to get on and do our own thing. I think the cons- conservative instinct is to look back to those traditions. Acknowledge the flaws, but also draw upon the things that they believe the conservatives have recognized are truly perennial, are truly timeless in the type of wisdom that they can convey to us in the present.
1: Some uh, have said uh, Scott Yenner, um, David Azurad, among others, uh, that the hope here for recovery of virtue has to come through Americans recovering and reinstilling reinstilling. Uh, Protestantism and, you know, what they think, what they would call Protestant morality. Uh, What do you make of of those sorts of calls? Well, uh, it depends what
0: they mean by that, right? So if they mean a type of generic Christian morality, if that's what they mean, uh, then uh, sure, but it's important to recognize, partly because a lot of those claims are uh, are not necessarily dependent upon accepting the claims of Christian revelation, right? Because most of these things are also recognizable and affirm- affirmable by uh, right reason, by the tradition of natural law. Uh, but the, But part of the issue, of course, is that we don't live in a country that is dominated by... <laughs> Uh, mainline no. Protestants, right? Mainline Protestantism is collapsing everywhere in the United States, precisely because they've rejected <laughs> so much of their own traditions about these sorts of things. So t- to my mind, um, it, and it's very difficult when you're to appeal to some of those things, those traditions, when there are large segments of the country, not necessarily majority but a a certain number of people in the country, particularly at the level of elites, who simply just don't accept these things. Um, So it seems to me that it's one thing to talk about that, and a lot depends on what you mean by that. But I would argue that, perhaps more importantly, we need to rehabilitate the idea of natural law, Uh, and to a certain extent, that's been going on. I think natural law went into definitely went into an eclipse in the mid 20th century, uh, to a certain extent in different parts of the world, including in the West. But we're also learning now that it's it's that the type of positivism and relativism that replaced it in many parts of the legal academy and the way that a lot of political thinkers and philosophers thought about the world. Um, it turns out that it's not it's not particularly stable. <laughs> It turns out that it's, it's, it's in flux and it doesn't provide you with stable foundations. So it seems to me that, um, and this is also a challenge for conservatives, right? Because there's a whole tradition, conservative tradition of skepticism that people who say this they're conservatives because they're skeptics, because they just don't think that we can take truth claims particularly seriously. But it seems to me that if we're going to be um, bringing back a type of consensus about the types of moral questions and moral issues that need to be sort of of more or less settled if you're going to have a republic, it seems to me that the tradition of natural law, and, and that includes, by the way, the tradition of natural rights, needs to be made much more part of the overt conservative lexicon. Because if you don't, I think you're either ending up with a type of fideism or on the other hand, with a type of skepticism and pragmatism. And neither skepticism nor pragmatism are frankly capable of resisting the type of very strong claims that progressives and modern liberals are making today.
1: Thinking about political economy here, so changing gears, uh, what could we appeal to? Uh, Many say what comes out of the American founding is a Hamilton state-directed program, uh, centralized finance, to empower a fledgling nation uh, to, to become great and powerful. Uh, what, what is our tradition here? Is there something precisely we can identify uh, for conservatives to think about as they uh, engage in contemporary debates?
0: Well, the first thing I'd say is that any state or republic or, or new country Is bound to have um, circumstances in which there are going to be some institutions that are set up precisely because they don't exist right so you need to set up a um, an army you need to set up a judicial system that reflects the fact that you are that, that that is that reflects the fact of a new country that has just come into existence these things just don't spontaneously pop out of nowhere you need to do that and I think that's important when we're understanding someone like a hamilton and and the and the first the the Washington administration as a whole that they're, they're in the business of trying to set up some institutions that they think are necessary for the the life of this republic right so that's the first thing The second thing I'd say is that i mean I think that the interpretation of Hamilton as being this sort of grand centralizer et cetera is is uh, highly exaggerated it shows up in things like. His view of tariffs, right? So he's often cited as, well, you know, this is why we need to be protectionist. And of course, the real argument is, well, no, I mean, most of the tariffs and protectionism he's talking about are a form of revenue for the federal government. There's no income tax, right? And the things he's talking about protecting in terms of industries are generally related to things of military necessity. And free traders have always recognized that national security is a legitimate exception to the free trade rule. But leaving all that aside, I think the general vision that comes out of the founding is not one of agrarian yeomen who live on small farms, and, and, and the United States is basically this agricultural um, utopia. And you find traces of that, and sometimes articulations of that, in the writings of fig- figures like Jefferson. The vision that comes out of the founding is that the political economy is one of a commercial republic. That's very clear. Uh, And that's the vision that eventually triumphed, I think. We did not, America did not become this sort of, it it moved very quickly in the direction of um, sophisticated finance, uh, industrialization, etc. And those parts of the country that did not do that, uh, most particularly the South, where, of course, slavery prevailed and was basically where slavery in the cotton industry became essentially the the, the one industry, Um, those are the parts of the country that fell behind economically very quickly. But in terms of political economy, it seems to me just clear that a commercial republic is the vision that triumphed, certainly by 1800, I think that's the vision that triumphs, and that is the vision that informed the development of the republic, certainly all through the um, the 19th century, despite the Civil War and despite different things that Progressives were doing at the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the the end of the 19th century, and then with people like Wilson and the Great Society, you see a move away from this tradition of America as a commercial republic. And it seems to me that that is the type of political economy we need. To, the conservatives need to be promoting today. One, because it's faithful to the founding, but two, I think it actually reflects a society like America, where commerce has been given this particular status and importance, because it is important, because it is is it it is the way in which economies grow, it is the way in which wealth is provided, and it is ultimately the way in which America becomes strong, because we don't have a strong economy that's based on markets, limited government, private property, rule of law, entrepreneurship, etc., you become weak. You become a weak country. Because the thing about social democracy is it's not particularly good at making countries strong. It tends to enfeeble them for the most part.
1: What, when we, when we think about you know, so this, you know, so many would argue, you know, uh, someone like Michael Lind, uh, as you know, argues sort of uh, Hamilton is sort of this master uh, theorist of the commercial republic and is putting together a plan. Uh, it's a centralized bank. It's the way we should sell land. It's uh, protecting manufacturing industries because that will make us stronger and wealthier. Uh, and then, but he's the one that starts to articulate the idea of an American system and bringing that about. But I, as, I, as I think about his argument, it's almost sort of a sideshow. And it's a sideshow, I think, because you would agree with me on this – the level of intervention in the economy by the government right now is so dramatic. I mean, the percentage of GDP spent by the government, the cost of regulations to the economy, the extensiveness of that regulatory apparatus is so massive that it, it sort of makes these arguments for like industrial policy or bringing back manufacturing jobs look puny uh, and re- really reveals how ineffectual they are. People just sort of think about the breadth of what we're dealing with.
0: Yes, I mean, and that is a genuine problem today because we have you know, the rise of economic nationalism where they're proposing more tariffs, uh, they're proposing industrial policy in parts of the country designed to protect, they believe, certain types of jobs, etc. But I mean, it is a sideshow in the, in the sense that we are a highly regulated economy, something like what is it, 35% of American GDP is controlled by the state in one form or another. Um, we're highly regulated, we have lots of industrial policy. The notion that America has been living in a sort of laissez-faire world since Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980 is just, it's just nonsense. It just doesn't stand up to the facts. And it also distracts us from what I think is the bigger question, which is identifying what in the conditions of a commercial republic must the government do not what it might be nice for the government to do or what might but what must the government do and when you think about it i think that adam smith's uh, recommendations i think it's in book five of his wealth of nations where he says okay the um, government exists it exists to promote national security it exists to provide a judiciary and protect property rights rule of law Smith is even willing to consider some forms of public education, but that's more or less it. Now, for a lot of people, they think, "Well, that's a sort of night watchman state. That's very limited." Actually, it's not. All those things are very weighty responsibilities. They are not cheap, uh, and they involve, um, they necessitate things like taxation, etc. Uh, but we're not even doing those things particularly well because government is is trying to tell people what should be taught in schools, or they you know they're regulating different industries to the utmost utmost degree in, try, in trying to realize very specific goals. So, I mean, if, 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 if we actually had a substantive debate on the right about what it is that government must do, what is absolutely necessary for government to do, that would be, I think, a much more constructive and clarifying discussion than the type we're having now, whereby uh, people like myself are arguing against other people who consider themselves or present themselves as conservatives, but who want more government intervention up up and beyond the huge amount of government intervention that we already have
1: today. Sam, I think that's a fitting note to end. Uh, We've been talking about the new paper you've written for the Heritage Foundation, Why the American Founding Matters for American Conservatism. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Richard.